morning, everyone, and welcome to the Pathfinder podcast, where we talk to companies about their journey in adopting AI and data technology. This week, I'm joined by Jack Fitzsimons from Oblivious, a data privacy startup based in Dublin. One of the common concerns businesses have around working with data is the risk to data privacy. Jack is going to talk to us today about some of the solutions and tools and techniques that have been developed in recent years to help this problem. Jack, thanks very much for joining us today. So for our listeners, do you want to give a bit of background for yourself and what Oblivious does? Yeah, sure, no problem. So my name's Jack Fitzsimons, and I'm kind of lead the technology development at Oblivious. It's a Dublin-based startup that's focused on privacy-enhancing technologies. So my background is very much in like machine learning and, and AI. So I did my PhD in machine learning at Oxford, um, and worked in a number of startups and larger organizations, working with, with data the whole time. And really what we found is, at least my journey was, you start off and you learn all of the theory, the maths, the statistics, the probability. And then a little bit later on, you learn all about the models and, and how they work, etc. Eventually, you get to a point where you're often thinking about the kind of software engineering, kind of practical challenges, deploying something maybe at scale, etc. And eventually, you land yourself where, where I landed, which is thinking about all of the other considerations too. So where does the data come from? How do you get access to it? What happens if your system doesn't, if it doesn't work, if something goes wrong? Um, is there bias considerations or are you liable if you accidentally misclassify something, etc. And that's very much where Oblivious came from. We really focused on the challenge that many, many data scientists and practitioners find, which is how do you get access to data and guarantee to people that you're using it for its intended purpose. So when it comes to dealing with data, particularly with customer data, a lot of companies get a little bit angsty about utilizing it, doing something with it. There, you mentioned liability, like the, uh, with GDPR and insurance issues. If something goes wrong, is it on them? So companies naturally have become very aware of the risks involved. To provide some clarity, then, what types of data do you need to be worried about having privacy protection around? So um, often when people think of like the space of privacy enhancing technologies, they, they rush to things like GDPR, like, like you mentioned, which I guess is, was the first of the really modern privacy regulations, which are now, you see them in, in California with CCPA, you see them in Australia, etc. However, actually, when you read and you get to the meat of those regulations, typically they're not about specific controls or technologies that you use when you're processing the information. Typically, it comes down to more basic considerations, like keeping it secure at rest, but really things like just knowing where your data is, knowing how you're using it, making sure that that is in agreement with the terms and conditions that you kind of set out when you were originally collecting it. It's kind of the basics of data governance, really. What we look at more is trying to protect data throughout its life cycle. So, you know, when you start to use customer data, as you described, you can imagine trying to you want to publish some insights about your customers. So this would be a classic example. So you want to be able to write a press release and then say a whole bunch of stats about your customer base. However, you may be slightly cautious that the information that you share might actually reveal things about individual customers in that customer base. So you want to be really careful that what you disseminate doesn't allow people to reverse engineer the original inputs. That's called output privacy. Um, the other typical area of privacy-enhancing technologies is around input privacy. 
So imagine in yourself and company A both have some data. Or even better, you have some machine learning model and they have some data. How do you actually apply the machine learning model to the data? Either they have to send you their data, which means they inherently trust you and they're not worried about the confidentiality of that data, etc. Or you have to send them your hard-earned IP and send them the model, which means you know it's very hard to retain that as a you know as an as a service customer, you could say. So um, so these are really more the focused down areas of um, privacy enhancing technologies, and ultimately, how do you process information, perform calculations, gain insights, gain values, train models, etc., without directly seeing the underlying data. Uh, making sure that that data is only really used for its intended purpose uh, through that kind of like data life cycle. That's very much what we focus on. So privacy techniques have been in development now for, for a number of years that allow companies to get value out of consumer data without actually infringing on their natural privacy. And this is like literally what, what the problem is. is like usually how do you get people to collaborate or how do you share data with a third party? You know, or how do you call an API? or, you know, call a service and, and benefit from a third party like data processing or an API or something, or, you know, I don't know, go into a JV or something without directly sharing that, that granular information about individuals to one another. That's typically where, like, privacy enhancement technology comes from. There's a lot of buzzwords, but it typically comes from how do you connect data that's usually siloed, um, you know, without revealing it to anyone in between. Or how do you make a calculation and share the result while making sure you can't reverse engineer the original inputs? That's pretty much the two pillars. And all of the buzzwords around federated learning or differential privacy, or they, they all just fall into solving one of those two challenges or some combination of both. Um, I think kind of intuitively, there's lots of examples that we can always go back to, like, I've got a customer list and you've got a customer list. So if, uh, you know, <laughs> if we were ever going to, to start to work together, we might want to say, well, you know, what type of businesses would we target? Right? I probably don't want to tell you who has signed up for our service, <laughs> nor do you probably want to share with, you know, who your customers you're currently working with are. How do you even broker that relationship? And like, this is as true for, you know, kind of smaller companies as it is for very large companies. So sometimes you see, com you know, you'll get banks and insurance companies and fintechs and reinsurance companies that are actually all owned by the same parent holding company. But because they're different like institutions with obviously um, like regulatory considerations and, and, and perhaps, you know, other constraints and controls, they don't want to directly share their information between the organizations. But there's a lot of willpower to kind of upsell and cross-sell products and services to one another. So this is like typically where you start to see the use of like privacy enhancing technologies. Um, and then of course, there's like millions of examples when you go to more broad AI applications. Probably the biggest one I'd say is, even if you think of like AI as a service, right? So like, that's a big space, but things like, um, you've got a bunch of cameras in your shop and you wanna pay some company that will do analytics and see like where, what aisles your customers go to and like what they are typically buying or where the hotspots in your store are or something like that. Well, realistically, you're just sending them live footage from your store always. And that can not only give away 
sometimes it's restricted, like it could be GDPR issues, etc. But also sometimes it's like confidentiality issues. Maybe you don't want your competitors to know, or maybe you don't really trust that third-party service. Maybe it's provided by, you know, some company that, that you know, dubious histories or something like that. So like, how do you have the guarantee that they're literally only processing that information? They're not storing any log files. They're not, you know, none of their data scientists are reading or checking out your information. And still you can take advantage of that service. And actually there's a whole, like in the financial industry section, for example, it's a whole bunch of like niche areas that are multi-billion dollar verticals. And they're basically completely dominated by like monopolies or oligarchies. Like, I don't mean that in terms of like, you know, how we think of I mean like small number of players who just like completely own the space and the reason they own the space is just because they've just been there for a really long period of time so like people just kind of trust them because they've seen the name a whole bunch of times and um, typically you can remove that incumbent's advantage of just being a trusted entity if the issue of trust is removed so that, that's why I think within the broader areas of, um, of data AI machine learning any of these kind of topics, if you can remove the challenges associated with trusting one another, you can do things that, that otherwise are like impossible. Okay, so that kind of sounds like there can be a lot involved in setting up the infrastructure around sharing that data. What are the tools that are maybe easily available kind of off the shelf that companies can can use to basically improve that process and make it easier to do that and what's involved from the company's side then to make that happen yeah that's no, a great question so this is the kind of the challenge so there's been a number of companies in this space and actually like the concept of what's referred to as like secure multi-party computation so how do multiple people multiple groups or, or people you know either share have different inputs that they combined together in some way or to process data in some way to get like some shared output that's been around since like the 70s or 80s it's just been like not very many good ways of doing it and so i think the history is really like up until 2014 2015 your best bet was to use this like really advanced crypto that basically no one ever uses uh, and, and the challenge with that is that a lot has been done in like the research communities it's like a huge amount of literature to support like the capabilities you can actually run but just the challenge time and time again is that it's not popular enough so there isn't like iso standards or you know iso eit there's no like nist recommendations and guidelines that, that people should be following to deploy this so because of that you can't really build tools that ultimately will be like underwritten and insured and, and because of that, it means you can't really actually use them, right? Um, if something goes wrong, you can't just say, hey, these smart people built this thing, so I thought I was risk-free. Like, ultimately, like that's going to be somewhat on you. So in the last number of years, there's a, a space called confidential compute. So what happened there is a technology called secure enclaves. I won't go into too much detail, but... They started to emerge. Really, some of the pioneers in it are, are Intel with physical hardware. And I know, you know, a lot of the Intel guys, but what they did was they literally had a separate part of the physical chip, like different silicon that would process the sensitive data, have very limited inputs and outputs. So you knew no like side information was being lost or something. And it would guarantee what software was running inside. And at the beginning, it had some limitations, etc. But actually, every year they're reducing 
the number of limitations there. And that got a lot of it, you know, that became very attractive to a lot of people who wanted to build higher level applications or in data sharing or data processing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a little bit later, the cloud companies said, hang on a second, we already do this. <laughs> so whenever you spin up like an AWS uh, EC2 or if you're on Azure, like Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud or whatever, you're, you're not, um, you can get bare metal machines, but very few people actually use just bare metal machines the whole time. They usually just spin up uh, virtual machines. Uh, and what's happening there is it actually means that you're likely sharing the underlying physical hardware with other groups. So it could easily be the case that Netflix and, I don't know, whatever bank you're with, is actually running partially on the same computer. And it's, in this case, Amazon that partitions the memory and the CPUs so that Netflix gets some portion of the resources, the bank gets some portion of the resources, and they never see each other's code or data or anything like that. And so the cloud provider said, well, hang on a second, if we're... If we already do this, uh, you know, we already manage this through the hypervisor, well, can't we just silo off a set of resources and we kind of take it back under management? And of course we can guarantee what's in there because we can just uh, hash everything. And just like how you do a DocuSign, they, they hash all the software and they digitally sign what's inside. And that allows kind of a trusted execution environment, a trusted space that people can send their data and software to, to broker trust. And to be honest, the big use cases in, in this confidential compute really aren't around collaboration and, and data. It's usually things like, I have a lot of data, I keep it encrypted in a database, and I want to just make sure the only time it ever gets decrypted is when it's doing this thing that I want it to do. That's where like a lot it's governance, essentially. That's where a lot of the confidential compute community go. But the space of bringing you know, data from one party or maybe multiple parties and algorithms together <laughs> so that you can actually you know, apply inference or train a machine learning model or whatnot in these, these environments. The tooling, in our opinion, kind of sucked. Uh, and so we said, well, somebody should fix this. And we thought, why not us? <laughs> so we've really built the, the tooling around that to make it accessible. And admittedly, our tools are kind of aimed at like techie people, like developers, et cetera, who can take the most advantage of them. But equally, you know, we, we built services, we call them. So certain functionalities that are just plug and play. We build them once. It's the same problem that you're solving again and again. So it allows people to make comparisons or make one thing that we see a lot of is you'll have, for example, either two companies or two organizations or two teams within a single company, but they have different data stewards, et cetera. And they just want to bring together like CSV files or, or whatever the case may be. Um, or like you know, a table from a SQL database or something. They just want to join this data together and then create fake data that resembles the original data, but it doesn't hold any of the like sensitive characteristics. Like you can't re-identify an individual from it, and then give that fake data to like data scientists and stuff. And the reason they do that is because people can kind of prove out values or test basic hypotheses, which then you know typically motivate the organizations enough to be able to actually connect and share their information more broadly. So these kind of services, we just build whitelisted ones. And it's literally like it takes like three minutes for you to log in <laughs> and to, to deploy one of these and to upload data and to process it and stuff. And of course, the key feature for us as well is we have like some free offerings and stuff that people can 
play around with. One of the things that we think is really important is that you don't have to trust us at all. And actually, you can deploy all of this on your own cloud to be inside your own infrastructure on your own cloud. And you're just taking advantage of the like basically the latest, greatest features from the cloud provider you already use, essentially. So what you were talking about there around creating a new data set off of your original data set that doesn't actually hold the sensitive information, um, that's differential privacy, right? Absolutely. So there's basically two pillars to privacy. There's info privacy, which is really the tooling that, that we provide. That's like our kind of a core company offering. And then there's output privacy. So input privacy is how do we get input security into a, a safe location processed for a specific task and it can't be used outside of that circumstance. And then you have to think about, well, hang on a second, someone's going to get a result or somebody's going to get, in this case, fake data or something like that. Can't you just reverse engineer the original inputs from that? And differential privacy, what that basically implies is that you typically add error thing, to think, add noise, that's the mechanism. And from that, you can mathematically guarantee you can't work out the original inputs from the outputs. So we don't focus uh, as a company on differential privacy. We focus on the input privacy end of the things, but with a number of partners, we build out capabilities so you can leverage both input privacy and differential privacy for, for various different purposes. And that kind of gives you the benefit of bringing sensitive data together, processing it, and then essentially sanitizing it, in quotation marks, using differential privacy, so you also know that the outputs produced are also safe to, to share or just to disseminate more broadly, essentially. So one thing that I keep hearing in conversations is people saying, oh, but you can just anonymize the data sets. Now, there's obvious issues with that. So could you explain why that's not enough and why you need to do something more like uh, add noise to the data to manipulate it? Yeah, so a great question. So basically, there's a number of reasons why, but there's a lot of massive cases, like, you know, famous examples of why this is a bad idea. When people say anonymization, they can mean different things. But essentially, what I think you're talking about is what I hear a lot, which is like, oh, you just remove the email address. or Yeah, that's, that's essentially <laughs> what I hear people saying all the time. Right, and it's the logical thing. Well, how do you know their name if their name's not on the, on the you know, the record associated with them. But I don't think what you people realize is it's actually very easy to like to rework out who someone is. And these are typically called linkage attacks. And like there's some really famous examples, including um, the, I mean, there's a number of them. The first, like the kind of oldest one that I remember well is around the Massachusetts um, Life Insurance Group, I think they were called, or, or something along those lines who was basically going to sell insurance claims to like pharmaceutical companies and other kind of medical providers. Um, and it was meant to be super anonymized and, you know, people's details were stripped off. Um, and there was a reporter in Boston at the time who basically said, there's no way this can be safe. And I think the governor at the time was like, oh no, you know, it's, it's safe and anonymous. And what she realized was that people's gender, date of birth, uh, zip codes, etc., were still on this, this data set that they were selling. So she bought the, I think it was the Boston or the Massachusetts uh, voting registry for like 20 bucks, like it was you know, cost nothing. Uh, and she was able to link just based on people's date of birth, zip code, and gender, the two databases together. 
and obviously reconstruct or re-tag on people's names. And I believe she was even able to identify like the health records associated with the governor, who was the guy who said it was like safe to use. Right? So, I mean, that's a little bit hilarious, but obviously very unfortunate for them. But even way more recently, uh, the Netflix Prize had a big issue. So Kaggle is an online data science competition website, I guess you'd say. They publish data sets. They publish you know, uh, inputs, you could say, and some of the outputs. And you train a model to try to work out how to make predictions to guess the outputs. Uh, and then you submit your model, and it checks it on the rest of the data set that you don't have access to. And you know, people get ranked, and there's winners and losers and all the rest. And Netflix put up a million dollars for whoever could create the best uh, predict. You had to predict what movies people were going to watch next based on their uh, viewing history. And they thought it was super safe, and they thought they'd stripped off all of the anything that could possibly be used to re-identify who's who. But what people always forget is that you're only in control of the information you share with the world. You're not in control of the other information that exists in the world. And so I believe it was IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, I think it was IMDb, that the, the reviews on that, people had, had, had scraped the data set associated with that. And when you bring those two things together, you know, how many people watch, you know, Harry Potter at 7 p.m. on Thursday and then watch, you know, whatever the next movie is the following night and, and so on. It's actually quite rare when and what movies people watch if you look like that kind of time series. So you connect up together um, the two databases and you could figure out you know, who's watching what. And that actually led to a big lawsuit, which eventually got settled because some information was basically shared that was deemed quite sensitive about individuals based on basically their viewing history. But it just shows you that like, unless there's a strong, unless you can like strongly formalize essentially your ability to of, of how you're using data and, and of what you're revealing about that data, you're not really in safe territories. I mean, that's why when we talk over the internet, like we are today, we're using HTTPS, uh, you know, we're using an encrypted channel. And that's not like kind of encrypted. That's like, you want to make sure you're using one that you really, really trust. Uh, and that's kind of the difference between like security and just obfuscation, right? It's not, uh, you're not really hiding information if you just write a letter and then you change all your A's to O's or something like that. Like that, that's, that's the trick. That's essentially kind of what you're doing when you remove someone's email address or something like that. Great. Thanks, Jack, very much for joining us today on the Pathfinder podcast. It was great to have you and for sharing some insight on data privacy. Cheers. Thanks, Ian. And that is it for this week's Pathfinder podcast. I'd like to thank Jack Fitzsimons for joining us today and shedding some light on the myths around data privacy and the tools that are available to solve these problems. Mm-hmm.